you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 28. If you don't, there may be a Bible in the chair in front of you, so uh, feel free to use those. Matthew chapter 28, as we uh, finish up our journey through the book of Matthew, we'll read together in chapter 28, beginning at verse 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and he spoke to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things which I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Lord God, for this uh, final section and this final challenge, this final command. Lord, we we pray that we would receive uh, this even as from the words of God himself, words in red. Lord, that our heart would be open to understand that the struggle that we have today was there that day on that hill. And Lord, that you would, even as we've sung this morning, set us free. Set us free from the chains that bind us to the thought that we can't. Set us free to your voice that says we can. Father, we ask that you would meet us in this place and open our eyes to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as I prepare the study for this week, and and, uh, as I always do, somewhere or another, I end up going through several commentaries. And it's always interesting when you you look at commentaries. Does everybody know that a commentary is not inspired? In case you're wondering, commentaries are not inspired. The Word of God is inspired. Everything else we have to weigh. We have to glean. And a lot of the commentaries, when they look at this section of Scripture, they want to say that this event is what was spoken of in, in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Jesus appeared to over 500 people at once. The reason they want to say that is because it makes what happens in the first two verses a little easier to deal with. Unfortunately, the first verse, verse 16, begins with the phrase, the eleven. Oh. So we can say somewhere 500 people snuck out there and got there, but what we see occurring as we open up the page of Scripture in verse 16, the Bible tells us, it lays out for us, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee. Specifically, the Word of God tells us the 11 because it wants us to know it was those 11, those 11 that Jesus had come to in John chapter 20, presented Himself to them, breathed on them, and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Those full, believing, trusting, loving disciples of Jesus Christ who are about to go into the world and turn the world upside down. Those 11. It's those 11. And we read their reaction as it says to us, they went to the mountain that Jesus had appointed to them. So this is a place they had been before with him. When the Lord said to the, to, to the women, tell them to go, I've gone ahead of them to, to Galilee. I'll meet them there. They knew where to go. They knew what mountain it was that the Lord was going to meet them on. And so to that appointed place, the disciples went. And when they saw him, they worshipped. Always like to see places in scripture where something happens for the first time. Well, that's the first time the 11 disciples worshiped Jesus together. First time they proskuneu, made themselves prostrate before him. He's not, as we'll see in a moment, he's not standing right there before him. It's as though as they're coming up the mountain, they see him. They see him in the distance. There he is. There's Jesus. And at that moment, they're overwhelmed and they worship. But then there's a disturbing phrase, isn't there? And some doubted. 
Well, we could explain that a lot easier if we just said there were 500 people there and some of those people weren't sure. But the Bible told us it's the 11. The 11 that are there, the 11 that are looking to Jesus, the 11 who have fallen down in worship and then the scripture lays out that, that little phrase, some doubted. You know, the scripture tells us that so that we'll understand that those 11 guys who turned the world upside down weren't made of something different than what you're made of. They're made of the same stuff. And they had doubts. They had worries. They had responsibilities. We really think it's different then than it was now. Those who had families needed to provide for their families. How am I going to get that next meal on the table? And and. All of this is occurring. Real life is still happening. It didn't stop. And here are the 11 disciples. They're there and they, they bow down and, and worship the Lord. But they're, they're faced with this, this, this doubt. And that word, the word that the scripture uses for doubt is edistasen. And it's only used in one other place. That other place that it is used is Matthew chapter 14. Verse 31. You might, you'll remember the story. The disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee, big storm. And they look off in the distance and they see someone walking to them on the water. And as they see him walking on the water, they're afraid at first as a ghost, some kind of apparition that's come to them. But, but suddenly someone says, no, it's the Lord. And Peter says, Lord, if that's you, bid me to come. And Jesus said, Come. And Peter climbed out the boat, and he began to walk on the water. But the scripture tells us he started to see all the waves and the wind and the danger and the fears of life welled up within him, and he sank. And as he sank, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus was right there to lift him up, to pick him up out of the water and whisper into his ear, Peter. Why did you doubt? Man, it's a common thing in the life of believers. People want to say it's it's not common. I'm not sure who those people are. We we deny the truth if we deny, oh I never, I'm never, I never have doubt. You can wear a shirt that says no fear. It doesn't mean you don't have any, just so you know. You can get a tattoo on your forehead. I am not afraid of nothing. Yeah, great. Whatever you say. Whatever you say. They had this this doubt. Peter had this doubt when he saw the wind and the waves. The exact same word used here. So I want you to understand, it's not a doubt like, oh, I don't really know if, if Jesus is the Messiah, or I don't really know if Jesus is God, or I don't really know if I'm really saved. It's not what they're talking about. They're talking about the pressures of life, the wind, the waves, the storm, the issues, the things that are setting out there. The things that can come upon us. We see an example of it in the book of James. If you want to just flip to the book of James real quick, if not, we'll catch up to you in Matthew 28 in a minute. But James chapter 1, verse 5, and on says, begins with this phrase, you'll be familiar with it. If any lacks wisdom, and by the way, that is, if and it is so. That doesn't mean that there are some people who don't need this. That means everyone lacks wisdom. Since we lack wisdom would be another way that it could be translated. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Who gives to all liberally and without reproach. What's that mean? God's not angry when you ask Him for help. He's not angry when we ask Him for wisdom. So let Him ask of God and it will be given to Him. But let Him ask in faith with no doubting. Why? For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? For he is double-minded. In the Greek, that means double-souled. Here's how I want you to see it. Something else has begun to take centrality in their life. 
Well, they, they know Jesus is who Jesus is. They trust in the Lord. They trust in all those things. But somewhere along the journey, here coming to Galilee, they picked up something else. Some worry. Some concern. Something. And it is encroached upon the centrality of Christ. Do you know that whether or not something is a giant is strictly based on our perspective? Are you aware of that? I mean, if I hold my thumb close to my eye, it looks awful big. If I hold it out way out here, I can't even see it anymore. Does that mean it's not there? It just means my eyes are getting really bad. It's all about perspective. How close you are to the object can make the object of your doubt your worry, your concern, cover up the reality that Jesus Christ is able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. That he is able to deliver. That he is able to carry us through. So the eleven have come to this place and they're there worshiping. And some while they were worshiping are struggling with doubt. Is that any different than it is today? As we sit and worship, that there's not those nagging issues, those worries and concerns in our life that are creeping up, that are, are that can and have become issues in our life, the exact same thing. Have our hearts picked up some priority rather than the centrality of Jesus Christ? Have we picked up some other priority? We become double-souled. We're unstable because there's other things pulling us in a different direction in our life. Double-souled. Doubting. This was the struggle that the disciples had. And it's still the struggle that we have to deal with in our lives. It's our reality. But the scripture goes on and says, Then when, when they saw him and they worshipped him and some doubted, and then when the next phrase, And Jesus came. So you see, they weren't sitting at his feet. They began worshiping when they could see him a ways off. They began struggling when they could see him a ways off. Don't you feel like that today? I mean, sometimes in, in my world, I long for, for the return of Jesus Christ. I long to be with him forever and to see him. But, and, and sometimes I see it closer than other times. But this, the, the closer I see that, the more I want to worship the closer I see that, the more I want to be about. When I think it's, oh gosh, it's that's so far away I can't even begin to imagine. Then maybe a little bit of laziness creeps in. I have more time. I have more time. They saw Jesus far off. And then the scripture says Jesus came to them. And as he comes to them, he says, he, he, he gives this teaching. Now, I don't want us, we've all heard this um, Many of us, hundreds of times. We have got to learn when we read the Bible to slow down. Don't be in such a hurry. We think we know what we read when we read it. And we just got to slow it all down. What is it that Jesus says? How does he begin? It says he spoke to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now everybody remembers our Greek lessons, right? All means... And that's that all means. That's right. All. So is there some authority somewhere that he doesn't have? No. Because he has been given all authority. The scripture begins with this concept. He has been given all authority. The word is exousia. It's used over 103 times in the scripture. And if you'll look up each and every time it's used, what you'll discover is the different areas... In which he has all authority. I just want to share a few of them with you. In Luke chapter 4 verse 32. When Jesus was teaching there in the synagogue in Nazareth. It said they were astonished at his teaching. For his word was with authority. He has all authority in teaching the word. Well. It kind of goes without saying, since he is God the Word. According to Revelation chapter 19, the name written on his thigh is the Word of God. 
John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, God the Word, He has authority in teaching the Word. In verse 36 of Luke chapter 4, it says, Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is! For with authority and power He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. He has all authority over the demonic realms, over the prince and the, and the power of the air, over the principalities and the powers that we struggle with. He has authority over all of those things. Luke 5.24, the scripture tells us, But that you may know that the Son of God has power or authority on earth to forgive sins, pick up your bed and walk. Because he has authority to forgive sins. Only God has that authority. That's exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees said. Only God can forgive sins. Scripture teaches he has all authority. Finally in John 17 too, In Jesus high priestly prayer. When he prays for his disciples. When he lays out his concerns. It says as you have given authority over all flesh that he should have eternal life to as many as you have given him that you have given the father has given the son authority to save he has authority to save all authority has been given to me jesus said all authority Everything that is necessary. When we consider the eleven as they come and worship, and some are struggling with being double-minded, some are struggling with being double-souled, they're picking up priorities in other areas of their life that are crowding out the, the centrality of Christ, even in the beginning. As that is the struggle, and as that's what's going on, the first thing Jesus says is, all authority is given to me. What are you worried about? Are you worried about demonic oppression? All authority is given to me. Are you worried about sickness? All authority is given to me. Are you worried about your provision? All authority is given to me. The way that the Lord battles with that struggle of unbelief, which Hebrews tells us comes into our heart because of the hardness of our heart, and that hardness of our heart based on the circumstances that we're going through, that hardness of our the battle for that, the softening of that hardness of our heart is to accept what the Word of God says. All authority has been given to me, Jesus proclaimed. And it's true. And it's true and it gives him the preeminence. The preeminence in Colossians 1, 18 and 19. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Who's in charge of the church? Well, it's just a struggle sometimes. But it's often within a church you can have a power struggle. I pray we never have a power struggle. What's a power struggle? Let me just settle it for you. All the different governments that can possibly be working within a church, Jesus Christ is the head. Those who are in a position of authority within the church are charged to be in prayer and seeking the Lord and allowing Him to guide. He's the head. He leads. Where He goes, we follow. Where he directs us, we will go. He's the head, it says. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. How many things? All means all, and that's what? All that all means. There's nothing else. There's no other preeminence. There's no other name by which you can be or must be saved. His is the name that is above how many names? All names. How many names is that? That'd be all of them, right? Any name that could be named? Oh, isn't it interesting? Because when we do, when we slow down and we read, listen, the scriptures are declaring who Jesus Christ is. There's only one preeminent name. And that's the Yahweh, the name of God. That's who he proclaims to be. That's why he has all authority. Where has this authority been given? 
in heaven and on earth. Is there some other place? So pretty much that covers everywhere. Would you agree? In heaven and on earth. Well, it doesn't say in Pluto. Pluto's in the heavens. That counts. In heaven and on earth. Everywhere. He has all authority. Why? Because he is almighty God. And he has one thing to tell his church. And his church needs to be listening. This is what he wants us to hear. And I want us to slow down. Because we get in such a hurry. When we look at these next, let me just read these next two verses. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded to you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Sounds like there are several commands. There is one command. There's one command. We look at the scripture, there's one simple command. There are three participles that modify the verb or the command. The first is the word go, therefore. It means having gone. It's, it means going is, uh, of course, something that you need to understand. It is assumed that you are going. It is, it is not commanded that you go. It's assumed that you already have the understanding that you are going. Let's go. The one command is make disciples of all nations. And the word that is, that is translated to make disciples is the word matheteu. It means teaching, or if we wanted to create our own word, discipleize. The idea behind it is understood by the three modifiers in the verse. The three modifiers are going, baptizing, and teaching. You want to know what Jesus said discipling is all about? What does it mean to discipleize? It means to go, to baptize, and to teach. This is what the, the verse is calling us to. Calling us to. Listen. This, this phrase is, that Jesus uses here is also used in Acts chapter 14, verse 21, and other places as well, but let me share this one with you. It says, and when they had preached the gospel, so they went and they shared the good news, they broke forth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to know the simplest form of the gospel? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 lays it all out for you. The gospel. First, they preached the gospel in uh, Acts chapter 14 to that city and the next phrase made many disciples. That is the natural outpouring of the gospel going forth. They made many disciples. First they went. Then they believed. Then they were baptized. Then they were taught. Then they went. It recycles itself. This is a command. Now oftentimes we look at this and we hear from, from, from David and Anne and they share about God laying on their heart to go. And we're thankful. Yes, I'm so glad that God's sending you because I don't want to go. Are you paying attention? Are you paying attention this morning? It's not open for debate. It's a command. Make disciples of all nations. That word for nations is the word ethnos. It means across all ethnic barriers. That would include countries, colors, creeds. Make disciples of all nations. That nothing would withhold a follower of Jesus Christ from sharing the gospel and making disciples. Not the distance, not the ocean, not the mountains, not the color of a man's skin, not the amount of piercings in their face. Nothing. Nothing. 
Make disciples of all men. So let's break it down a little bit. We'll break it down and we're going to look at each of the three actions that we read here. First, the going, the necessity for going. Go, therefore, literally having gone, therefore. There is always, in the words of Christ, the attitude of go to them. But often for us, there is the attitude of wait for them to come. Let's wait for them to come to me. The Lord will bring them to me. But in Luke chapter 15, Jesus told a story about a man who had a hundred sheep. Ninety-nine were found and one was what? Lost. And so that shepherd waited until the lost one found him, right? No, what's it say? He went out and found him. He left. He went. He was going. What I think Scripture is telling us that so often is a struggle for us. Remember, we're back at the 11 there, worshiping the Lord and doubting. Maybe we're doubting our own ability. Maybe we're doubting whether or not we're really able to do such a thing. So the Lord says, I have all authority all authority, have everything that you need. And then he says, go, having gone, go. Initial contact is to be made by us. To look for the opportunity to speak the gospel into somebody's life. We are to do that. That's not just for Greg Glory and other evangelists. It is for us all. Having gone, therefore, going, making that initial contact, looking for that, uh, that opportunity to be able to share, not come to me, let's go. There's a lost sheep out there. There's a lost coin. There's a lost person. And God's going to put you in a place where you can make contact, where you can, having gone, therefore, Share the gospel. Sharing the gospel of what it is Jesus Christ has done for us. Interesting as we talk about that. Sometimes we, we make the gospel about me. Sometimes we'll say, if we want to simply break down the gospel in the simplest terms, we'll say, God loves me. God loves you. That makes you center. That's why some people in their, in their growth, as they want to grow with the Lord, they go to a place where they like what they hear. They go to a place where the worship is what the songs they like. And they go to a place because it's all about them. You're not going to find that in the Bible anywhere. In the Bible, you are going to find that it is all about Jesus. It's all about Him. It's not what can I get, it's what can I give we say, well, I don't, I don't really feel that. I don't, feel, I don't know that I have that burden. I don't know that that's my charge. Well, listen, First John tells us that if we believe, if our faith is in Jesus Christ, we ought to walk as He walked. John 3.16 tells us what He loved. Do you know what He loved? God so loved what? The world. So it's our call to go to a lost world and bring them the truth. Breaks our heart when they won't listen. But it doesn't matter. It's not your job to make them listen. It's your job to go. And it doesn't just mean go to Romania. While that is important. But uh, to be honest with you, before you can go to Romania, you've got to be able to go across the street. You've got to be able to cross the gas pump and talk to that person who's pumping gas and looks like he's mad at the world. You've got to be able to stop when you see that person crying on the corner and have the compassion that says, I'm willing to stop. I know life's busy and there's lots of things that got to happen, but nothing is more important than a soul having an opportunity to hear the truth of the gospel. Nothing. Amen. That's the most important thing any of us can do, and it's a command. From our Lord to make disciples. Make disciples. First, the going. We have to go. Second, the second modifier is the word baptizing. Oh my goodness, we're going to have all kinds of problems now. 
The word baptizo or forms of, of the word baptize are uh, at least 123 times in the scriptures. It's not a little thing. And the word baptize is not a translation. It is a transliteration. What do I mean? It means they took the Greek word baptizo and they say it in English. To baptize. It's not defined. We're not going to dive into any definitions. I want to say what is it that Jesus is talking about when he says I want you going and I want you baptizing. Huh? Yeah. Make disciples. Go. Baptize. Teach. That's the call. That's the call. When we look at the 123 or so times that the word is used, we see three different ways that the word baptize is used in scripture. It is used sometimes figuratively. What's that mean? It means it has nothing to do with water. The word baptize can mean to be identified with or immersed in. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we, we see an example of that. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. All our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. It's a figurative. It's not talking about water baptism. It's the word baptizo speaking of the idea of being identified with. So some of the times it's used in scripture, it's used in that form, figuratively. So we're not really going to dive too much into to the figurative stuff. You're going to have to hang around next time we go through 1 Corinthians. We also see that it speaks spiritually. What's an example of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all have been made to drink into one spirit. The baptism of the spirit. It's a spiritual baptism. But that's not what he's talking about here. Then there is physical baptism. In Acts chapter 2 verse 38, listen, Peter says in that first sermon, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day 3,000 souls were added to them. Can you imagine baptizing 3,000 people? Man, what an awesome opportunity. I don't care how much work that is. That is awesome. That's awesome. What is it? Physical baptism. Being laid in the water. Being pulled up out of the water. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says making disciples. First you go. You're going to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You're going to share that good news. And the next thing that we want to understand is that he's calling us to baptize. I want you to understand what that meant in that world. Don't lose sight of that. You know what it meant in that world? It meant a public proclamation that I am a believer. A public proclamation that I'm a believer. It meant that some of the people that you used to buy your stuff from wouldn't sell it to you anymore. It meant clear delineation of lines. I have chosen. Today, Sometimes we saw the same thing in Harvest America, which, by the way, if you weren't here or didn't get an opportunity to see, we had Harvest America here last Sunday night, and six souls were added to the kingdom of God. So that's pretty awesome. But there's a call in, in events like that for, for a public profession. Jesus said, if you profess me before man, I will, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. And, and so in that public profession, that often they're asked to stand up and come forward. Baptism, especially in these, and what we see here, that's exactly what's taking place with them. There's a public proclamation. And it was something that's not just mentioned once or twice, folks. It's everywhere. Everywhere in the pages of Scripture. You want examples of who was baptized? How about Jesus? I should be able to stop there. 
Jesus, was he baptized because of sin? No, he said to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. We have John the Baptist being baptized. 3,000 souls baptized on the day of Pentecost. The ministry of Philip in the book of Acts in the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 19 and, verse, and chapter 22. The whole household of Cornelius in the, in the ministry of Peter. And the missionary work of Paul. I mean, you, there's no shortage of how often we see this understanding of baptizing. But then we come to today and we start arguing about whether or not baptism is necessary for salvation or isn't necessary for salvation. And then we have a pendulum swing. So because some people take the word of God out of order and they say baptism is necessary for salvation. Then we swing the pendulum the other way and we don't want to talk about baptism at all. That's wrong. And Jesus called us to be baptizing. He called us to it. To go, share the gospel. And part of making disciples is the idea of baptism. Let's explain a little bit of what we're talking about instead of explaining what we're not talking about. Baptizing is a command for every believer according to the word of God Acts chapter 2 verse 38 let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ that's a command be baptized I have a hard time with someone who's a believer in Jesus Christ who will not be baptized it's ridiculous God's word says, be baptized. Stand up and make a public proclamation of your faith. Be baptized. It's a command spoken of in scripture. It is also connected with repentance, cleansing, and forgiveness. The illustration is water is the most simplest form of understanding uh, the most basic cleansing agent. What has occurred in the life of a believer and what is spoken of in the act of baptism? That our sins are washed away. That I am a new creation created in Christ Jesus. That that it's all been done for me. Mark chapter 1, 4 and 5 it says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. And all the land of Judea and those in Jerusalem went out to him. And all were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. We we like to to try to say that that baptism was some new and strange thing for for Judaism. That's not true. There are mikvahots everywhere in Israel. Baptism was a regular course of events for them that spoke of their heart being purified and cleansed toward God. So the baptism of John the Baptist spoke of that. In Acts twenty two sixteen, And why now are you waiting? Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. The idea is there's a connection with the act of baptism and the picture of repentance. Proclaiming to anyone who was watching that my sins are washed away. The water didn't wash away your sins. We know that from Romans chapter 6. But the attitude that says, I am saying to you by this action, my sins are washed away. My faith and trust in Jesus Christ has made it so. Making that public statement. It's compared with death and burial. When we go under the water, right? We die to the old life and we are resurrected to the new. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 5 says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? It's associated or compared with death, burial, and resurrection. Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, in the same way we should walk in newness of life. We're raised to a new life. 
Making disciples means going, sharing the gospel, and baptizing. Baptizing. Colossians chapter 2 verse 12 says, To be buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Oh, even better picture of it is in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you want to flip there with me, we'll, we'll look at it together. We won't camp on it too much longer, but, but I just want us to grasp the concept. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 20. Speaking of the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once along the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared in which that a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to Him. There were eight souls saved. Were they saved in the water? No, they were saved in the ark. The scripture says there is an antitype, a symbol in the place of the flood water. What happened to those who were in the water? They died. The flood water represents the death. Everyone in the water died. Everyone in the ark lived. The ark becomes a picture of those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are saved. Not the washing of water or washing away the filth, but the act of being found in Him. The other thing that the scripture tells about baptism, guys, is that it is conducted only for a person who believes. Listen, in Acts chapter 2 it says, Then those who gladly received the word were baptized. When people got saved, what happened? They got baptized. When people got saved, they got baptized. And when they got saved, they didn't take a class about how they got saved so that they would later on be able to be baptized. When they got saved, they got baptized. The command is to make disciples. To be involved in the lives of people. Not just stuff. To go. To baptize. To baptize. When a man refuses to acknowledge his commitment before men, there is a question whether or not his commitment is true. So Jesus said, this is what you're going to do. Going, baptizing. The last one, teaching. Didasco. Teaching. Acts 18.11 says he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Teaching the word of God. Three things that we want to see in teaching, the way that teaching is to be done. And the most important of them is the very first one, and that is that it is controlled by the words of God. It's in your lap. The Bible. We teach the words of God, not about the word of God. We teach the word of God because the word of God is living and powerful. The word of God is alive. My comments are not alive. My comments are not inspired. Although I hope that the Holy Spirit is moving through me. The word of God is alive. That's what we teach. Not teaching about it. We can know a lot of things about the word of God and never be saved. You need to know the word of God. It is not your opinion about what God said. It is what did God say. Listen, in the pages of scripture, there is only one interpretation. Not a hundred. It's not what do you think this means? What do I think this means? What do we, it means one thing. Well, then how will I know what that one thing is? Well, study and show yourself approved. A workman of God, rightly dividing the word of truth. Pour yourself into the word. That's how you are going to discover what is. We want to go so fast. We want to be in such a hurry. We want to have all the answers now and not do any of the work for it. Study to show yourself approved. 
Pour yourself in. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to lead you. It's not a, a magic word that says, if I prayed and the Holy Spirit led me and this is what I think, do give due diligence to the study of God's word. We're all called to go. We're all called to baptize. We're all called to teach. All of us. Making disciples. This is what it's about. Are we making disciples? Are we doing God's perfect work? And we're teaching not the traditions of men, but the commandments of God. What does God's word say? The second thing that we see when we look at this concept of teaching is that teaching is to be committed to godly and gifted men. It's to be committed to them. 1 Timothy 4.11 These things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to believers in word, in, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading exhortation and to doctrine give attention teaching the word i don't know the word then you ought to remedy that situation as soon as possible don't you think you are gifted 24 hours every day jesus commanded you to do one thing make disciples Know the word. It's there. It's with me wherever you go. Nowadays you can even have it on your phone. In your radio. There's lots of ways. There's lots of ways to, to commit it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Doesn't the Bible tell us that in 2 Timothy chapter 3? And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The scriptures, they're important. But Amos 8.12 said, In those days there will be a drought for the word of God. Number one question to call in uh, Bible radio. Where is there a church where they teach the word? Shouldn't be that way. Ought to be everywhere. Teach the word. Teaching. Teaching. Giving what Christ has given. It's committed to godly men. It's... It's controlled by the words of the Lord, but the most important part, again, is it's centered on Jesus Christ. It's centered on Jesus Christ. Jesus said to the, the scribes and the Sadducees, He said, You search the Scriptures daily, for in them you find life, but it is these that testify of Me. It's on every page. The centrality of Jesus Christ throughout the Scriptures... That we're called to be those who are teaching. Colossians 1.28 says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect. How? In Christ Jesus. This commission that we look at, that we read so fast, is one command. Make disciples. Be involved in people. The church is not a building. The church is the brothers and sisters sitting around you. And our call is to not be focused on a building or a program, but to be focused on the lost. Who's lost and how do we get the word to them? i got to go. i got to tell them about the gospel. I've got to share the good news about what Christ Jesus has done for me. When they come to faith, I'm going to make sure that they're baptized. And then I'm going to teach them. I'm going to teach them what the Word of God says, what the commandments of God has. I'm going to pour into their life. There's no way around this. This is the call for us all. Go, therefore, and do what Jesus has asked us to do. We gather and we pray for revival, but the, the answer for revival is sitting right here. Go. Do. Tell. Oh, there's just one last thing. While we're feeling all stressed out about it. And we're thinking, oh, man. Knew I didn't want to come to church today. <laughs> Preacher being all heavy and, gosh. I don't know who he thinks he is. Yeah. I'm one of the 11 disciples sitting on the hill. Worshiping God and somewhere in my heart, I'm afraid. And I have doubts. 
But Jesus said to me, Jackie, I have all authority. I have everything you need to be who you need to be. And I only want you to do one thing. You're worried about a lot of things, Martha. But only one thing matters. Go, therefore. Pour yourself into someone else. Make disciples of all nations. Make disciples. Go baptize and teach. And then in the midst of what must have been for some of them a little bit of fear, Jesus gave, well, not a promise, a reality. What is it that he said? And lo, I am with you always. Even unto the end of the age, I am always with you. Go. That's what Jesus is calling us to this morning. As we have an opportunity to close out the service this morning in communion, I'm going to invite you as we just have an opportunity to worship while the ushers come forward and they pass out the implements of communion. And as we consider what it is that Jesus Christ has done for us, Please hear the words that Jesus is saying to you and I. Those are words in red. This is my call for you. We can be worried about a lot of stuff. Whether there's anything left in the 401k. (laughs) Or the economic crisis in our nation. Or the leadership crisis in our nation. Or... So many things, but one thing is necessary. Jesus is calling us to people. Bring the truth to the people. He says he'll be with us no matter what happens in the world, but to expect bad things. Isn't that what he said? In this world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. The world will be rough, but I'll be with you. One thing, make disciples. Healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. That's our call. Let's come before the Lord and worship. When Jackie said,